Uh, God, thanks for KJ. Thanks for his, his passion and his willingness to follow uh, where you're leading him uh, in ministry. And, and God, you've just uh, created him with an infectious smile and a personality that is magnetic. And Lord, he's a joy to be around. And we pray that you would use those gifts that you have given to him to reach a whole lot of people who uh, are not connected to a church community. And even more than that, Lord, to connect with people who, who don't know what it's like to find life in the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that you uh, be with KJ as he travels uh, all those miles out to California. Um, give him safety as he travels. Uh, Lord, give him uh, renewed energy uh, as he does this church planting journey, uh, Lord, the, the road will be difficult, um, starting with almost nothing, Lord, but l- trusting in you to provide, trusting in you to, to bring in people who want to uh, know you and get to uh, have a relationship with you. Uh, so God, your blessing uh, we, we give to KJ. Uh, we send it on his way, Lord, and pray that you will work powerfully in his life and in the lives of everyone who he comes into contact out there with. And God, we ask these things in your name. Amen. Thanks, KJ. So this morning, we are finishing up a series that we've been in for the last uh, number of weeks called The Big Picture. Now, for those of you who are uh, just joining us this morning, what we've been doing in this series is we've been taking an entire book of the Bible— and we've sort of been uh, seeing, like, what's the bigger theme that this book carries? And, and more importantly than that, how does this fit into the person and work of Jesus Christ? Uh, maybe, maybe another way to say that is we take one book of the Bible, sort of take a step back from an individual story that we might find in that book, and we want to see how does this book point us to the bigger redemptive plan that God has for this world? And I think that this is something, as we're here this morning, that it's really important for us to take away. That the Bible is pointing us to Jesus, it points us back to what Jesus did, or it's pointing us to what God's action in the world is. It helps us sort of see that, that the Bible is not just this ancient book filled with a bunch of stories that are bizarre, strange, or really interesting to read. Uh, nor does it leave us sort of on the other side of saying that the Bible is this... Um, guidebook or, or rule book that tells us how to be really good moral people. But rather, it shows us that the Bible is this profound work of Scripture that is ever pointing us to who Jesus is or who this Savior will be, pointing us back to what Jesus Christ did on the cross and ultimately showing us what God is still doing in the world. And if there's any genre of the biblical writing that really needs to carry that reminder that it's all about Jesus, it's the prophets. You know, the, the prophets, it's, it's those books of the Bible that come after the Psalms but before the New Testament. Uh, those, those books of the Bible that carry that stereotype of doom and gloom messages those books of the Bible that some people today try to use to predict the future based on events that are happening now. But more importantly than all that, I think it's those books of the Bible that if we, if we dare open them up and dare try to read them, we kind of get through them asking, what was that about? What sort of connection does that have in our own lives? Well, this morning, friends, we're going to go deep 
into the belly of the beast known as the prophets. And we are going to look at the Old Testament book of Obadiah. If some of you have never heard of the book of Obadiah before, I wouldn't be shocked at all. Uh, if, If some of you have heard of this book, but you've never actually read it, I wouldn't be surprised. If some of you have heard of this book of the Bible and have actually read it and then resolved that you would never, ever read that book of the Bible again, I got to tell you, I would completely understand. Because Obadiah is one of the most difficult books of the Bible to see how it applies to our lives, which I think is why Dirk is on vacation and makes me preach it, right? Pot shots where you can. That'll connect in later, I trust. <laughs> Way back, even in the early church, in the year 400, there was an ancient early church father, is what we call him. His name was Jerome. And when he talked about Obadiah, he said that Obadiah is as difficult to understand as it is short. It's just 21 verses in all. And I think that 1,600 years later, that we as the church still feel the same way about the book of Obadiah. It is heavy. It's judgmental in its nature. It is historically and culturally dated. It is, it portrays God, it portrays a loving God in a way that we would rather not see him portrayed. But just a little something to think about. To, to simply reject a scripture or to, to not read it because the application is culturally and historically dated or, or because uh, it, the, the, the understanding of it, the, it's hard to understand or it's hard for us to make sense out of. To simply just throw off reading the Bible because of those things is sort of like not watching a classic movie because it's in black and white. I mean, can you imagine how terrible Christmas would be if we didn't watch It's a Wonderful Life? What if we didn't watch It's a Wonderful Life because George Bailey uses weird slang like hot dog or he makes uh, weird cultural greetings like hee-haw or because the movie itself is not shot in high-definition 1080p? I mean, what a tragic Christmas it would be if we wouldn't watch It's a Wonderful Life just based on those things. Author and, and speaker Anne Lamott Uh, She has a a pretty well-known saying. I think we've used it here a time or two. Uh, But she says that we can safely assume that we've created God in our own image when he hates all the same people that we do. And I think that we could say the same thing about Scripture, too, that we can safely assume that we've created God in our own image when he only speaks and acts in ways that we want him to speak and act. So this morning, before... Before we throw out parts of scripture, and I would dare say that most of us would just toss out the entire book of Obadiah to begin with, what if for the next 20 or 25 minutes, we simply trust that this word is meaningful, that God is still working in this scripture in a profound way, and that most of all, this scripture still points us to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So maybe for just a little bit, we do that this morning. Just give it the benefit of the doubt. Uh, with that in mind, uh, let's start just by reading the first opening verse. It's, it's going to be on the screen behind me. Uh, the opening verse, and uh, even though this book of the Bible is quite short, we're going to be taking just a couple 
of the more major verses this morning um, to sort of make the point of what's going on. But I would encourage you, all of you, a- as you go home today after this message, being armed a little bit more with some historical facts about what's happening, but also seeing how this scripture might point us to Jesus, I-, I would invite you to go home and read this prophecy in its entirety. But for now, we start at verse 1, which says this. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle, her being Edom. So the first big question that I think we're asking, or if you're not asking it, I'm going to ask it for you. The question is, who or what is an Edom? And why on earth is God so mad at them? So 2,600 years ago, Edom was a country that bordered the nation of Israel to the southeast. If you're trying to figure out where that lies today, that would be like the southern half of modern-day Jordan. Edom was a, a rocky and a mountainous country, and all of its major cities were uh, high up in these sort of mountain fortresses that were really hard for invading nations to break into. The nation of Edom also had uh, two major trade routes that ran through it, and it was also a nation that was known for having valuable mo- uh, mineral and ore deposits. Uh, so historians have kind of pieced together that Edom was a relatively wealthy nation. And it was quite cultured and educated because of all the various thoughts and ideas and cultures that were coming through on those trade routes. And also, it was a really difficult uh, country to be taken over because their major cities were so well protected by these these, uh, high mountain ranges that had just narrow access ways to get to them. So one wrong step would mean that you would fall to your death. It was a pretty great nation. Now, buckle up with me a little bit because we have to do a little bit of Bible history because we need to kind of connect the dots to how this nation of Edom connects to the nation of Israel and why, and why exactly Obadiah is bringing this prophecy against him. So the people of Edom, also known as the Edomites, were the direct descendants of a guy named Esau. And you might remember that Esau was the older twin brother to a guy named Jacob. So Esau and Jacob, twin sons born to a man named Isaac, who was the son of a guy named Abraham. Abraham, who you might remember, God promised to make him into a great nation and that all of these descendants would come from him. Jacob, at one point in the the book of Genesis, wrestles with God and God gives him a new name called Israel. And this is where the nation of Israel comes from. So uh, the people of Edom are the direct descendants of, of Esau, the people of Israel are the direct descendants of Jacob. So what we have here are brother nations. Uh, they are siblings to one another. Going back to Jacob and Esau, uh, Jacob was uh, constantly deceiving and manipulating Esau all the time. For instance, uh, Jacob manipulated Esau into giving up his birthright. Uh, a birthright was like a monstrous inheritance that the father gave to the firstborn son. Jacob manipulates Esau into handing that birthright over for a bowl of soup. And then later on, Jacob deceives their father Isaac by pretending to be Esau, and then Isaac grants him the blessing that was reserved for the firstborn. So Jacob has stolen Esau's birthright and blessing 
as a firstborn. Eventually, Jacob has to leave because Esau is so mad at him and is ready to kill him. We fast forward a few years. Jacob and Esau end up meeting again later in life. And as they go into this, what could have been a volatile moment, Esau embraces Jacob and they restore their relationship as brothers. Unfortunately, their descendants didn't keep those brotherly relations intact. Uh, They were constantly and continually at odds with each other, which actually fulfilled a prophecy that was uh, in the book of Genesis that the Lord gave to their mother, Rebecca, basically saying, you have two nations in your womb. The older one will serve the younger one, and they are constantly going to be fighting with each other. Well, those words really came true. Uh, Fast forward a couple hundred years, the Israelites have just been freed from slavery in Egypt, and as they're making their way to the promised land, they need to go through the nation of Edom, because it's kind of like the most direct route there. The Edomites refuse to let them through. The, the blood is not good between them. Later on, when Israel has a few kings, both King Saul and King David made war against the Edomites all the time. In fact, one time, uh, David almost completely wiped them out. And for the most part, the nation of Edom served the nation of Israel during David's reign. Uh, a little Bible trivia here for you. There are more prophecies, oracles, and hostile references to Edom in the Bible than there are against any other nation. These two nations, even though they're supposed to be sibling nations, constantly are butting heads. Now, to to wrap the history lesson up, the nation or the the city of Jerusalem uh, eventually fell to the Babylonian Empire in the year 586 BC. And when the Babylonians came in and destroyed the city, uh, they took most of the people captive uh, out to Babylon, but they left sort of a remnant behind, a, a muddled and misfit group of people who were sort of left behind to, to mourn over the city, which is actually the book of Lamentations, which we talked about a week or two ago. Edom, taking full advantage of the situation, when Babylonians there ransacking the city, they join in, they loot, they add to the bloodshed, they do anything but stand up for the Israelites as they're being conquered and defeated. But even more than that, once the remnant is left behind, Edom continually comes in and and just kicks them while they're down. And then in turn, Edom thinks that they are completely immune from anything happening to them because they live in these big, high rock fortresses that they think are impenetrable. And this is where we again pick up Obadiah's prophecy against them. Verses 2 and 3, this is the Lord talking to the nation of Edom. He says this, See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks, and you who make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me to the ground? The first thing that Obadiah does is that he, he brings an indictment against the Edomites because of their pride. And also this foolish delusion that they have that because they have this rock fortress that they're invincible. And to be honest, they are completely fooling themselves because historically, the Edomites had been defeated a number of times, not just by the Israelites, but by other nations as well. They weren't as untouchable as they thought they were. And then they continued to kick the Israelites while they're down. But the thing is, 
they seriously underestimated God's commitment to the people of Israel. And you don't mess with God's people and get away with it. So we continue reading here. Uh, We move on to verse 10 and 11. And in verse 10 and 11, this is where God sort of like brings the charge against them. Like, this is what you've done and this is what I intend to do about it. Verse 10 and 11. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. The Edomites were pretty proud. They thought pretty highly of themselves. They thought that they could just do whatever they wanted. They thought that they could kick people while they were down. They thought that they could just celebrate over Israel's defeat. But God says something to them otherwise. He says that you've done these things. You have come in and you have abused and you have kicked my people while they were down and you think that you're untouchable, but you're not. God intended to do something about it. God is angry with them. God is angry with them because they have this undue, this overinflated sense of pride. God, God is angry with them because when their brother nation was being invaded, they idly stood by and watched. And even more than that, God is angry with them because as Israel was being defeated and as they were being ransacked and as this remnant is left behind, they celebrated in the personal suffering of the Israelites. Friends, it's, it's one thing to be thankful when justice is served, but it's a whole other thing to rejoice in the personal sufferings of your enemies. And this is what kind of Obadiah moves into the next part of his prophecy. And honestly, these are the words that are coming up next. These are the words where the Old Testament prophets get get the doom and the gloom message from. And and it comes out of this, this curious little phrase that you find all throughout the prophets called the day of the Lord. So Obadiah continues. We're at verse 15 and 16 now, which says this. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they have never been. So let's talk about this phrase, uh, the day of the Lord. It's a phrase that as you read through the Old Testament prophets, um, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, you hear this this phrase, the day of the Lord, over and over again. And typically when it's used, and then all of like the sort of contents that surround this phrase are usually extremely harsh in their nature. Most of the time when the day of the Lord is talked about, it refers to a time uh, of judgment or it refers to a time of destruction. Uh, the day of the Lord doesn't, doesn't refer to this strict 24-hour period, but it refers to a time period that, that God would use to act to bring about justice. 
Sometimes justice coming in the form of destruction. But other times, the day of the Lord is used to talk about the forgiveness and the restoration of certain people groups. Unfortunately for Edom, the day of the Lord is used as a day of judgment and destruction. And so Obadiah's message to them is that God is going to hold them accountable for what they've done. And he makes this, this metaphor about drinking and drinking and drinking until they no longer are, until they cease to be. In other words, what Obadiah is saying is that the cup of God's wrath will be poured out on them and at some point in time, they will be wiped clean of history. They will no longer be a people or a nation. It was a bit of a harsh judgment for them, but God was serious about the way they had treated their sibling nation. May 14, 1998, over 76 million people turned their television sets on to NBC to watch the series finale of the long-running comedy show, Seinfeld. Now, in this finale, Jerry and George, uh, they have finally convinced uh, NBC to produce their new sitcom called Jerry, a show which was to be about nothing, if you ever followed the show. Uh, Before George and Jerry are going to take a flight out to California to get the pilot produced in the first season uh, on its way, George and Jerry and Elaine and Kramer decide to take a, uh, a last-minute trip to Paris on one of NBC's private jets. And through a hilarious scenario of events, the plane has to make a safe but emergency landing in the small little town of Latham, Massachusetts. Now, as the four of them are out walking the streets, they are, they are like relentlessly mocking this small town. And as they walk along, they happen to witness someone who's being carjacked. While the carjacking is happening, Kramer videos the whole event, while the other three just viciously mock the man who's being carjacked, doing nothing to help. Moments later, a police officer shows up on the scene and informs the four that they are under arrest for having violated the recently enacted Good Samaritan Law. And as the the season sort of moves towards its ending, the four of them, they're brought to court. They are tried and they are convicted because they were found guilty of violating this law. And as the season finale wraps up, we see George and Jerry and Elaine and Kramer all in orange jumpsuits sitting in prison because they failed to act. They failed to step up and help out their fellow man in a time of need. Now, if anyone tells you or has ever told you that there is no redeeming quality in Seinfeld, you can tell them otherwise this morning. Because that season finale of Seinfeld, I think, sort of perfectly encapsulates what Obadiah is talking about here. Why God is so angry with these people. And it's a warning, it's a warning for any of us who think that those sins that Edom committed of kicking someone while they're down doesn't apply to us. Because I think that the sins or the shortcomings of Edom infect our lives a lot more than we think. You know, there's that person at work who you just want to fail on that project so badly so everyone can see what a screw-up they really are and then they can get fired. There's that person or that couple or that family that continually makes these choices in life 
that just makes their life continually and ever more difficult. And you sort of revel in this smug sense of self-satisfaction when you see those choices that they make backfire on them. Right? This happens a lot more than we care to admit. I would bet that some of you right now can think of that person who you want nothing more in life than to see them bite it hard. And in fact, when they're on the ground, you might casually walk over and sort of kick a little dust in their face just to make sure that they know how you feel about them. This happens a lot. And I think sometimes it's pretty easy for Christians to fall into that same sense of pride that the Edomites had as well. That sometimes it seems that Christian people can be a lot more, or find a lot more satisfaction in thinking that God is going to judge these non-believers harshly rather than taking on the message that Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, which says that God desires that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So a question for us as a church this morning. What's What's our reaction to people who don't know the gospel? Do we lament over the people who are extremely hostile towards the message of grace? Would we rather see them sort of get what's coming to them? Or do we have a heart to see that those people would come to know the saving work of Jesus Christ? This is where Obadiah continues in his message. We pick up at at verse 17, and he writes this. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance, It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Holy deliverance, he says. In other words, salvation. Salvation will be found on Mount Zion. It will not be found in murderous hearts, thoughts, or actions. On the surface, the the promise seems that it's just for the nation of Israel, that they would one day get to go back to Judah and to reclaim their territory. And in the uh, Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah, these are a couple books that come before the Psalms, uh, but after Deuteronomy, Ezra and Nehemiah, we see this happen. Uh, The Babylonians uh, or the Assyrians allow a few people to come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls, to rebuild the temple. So this prophecy is fulfilled in that manner. But the message is so much deeper than that. The message of Obadiah is is that he is glorifying the majesty of God by, by spotlighting, by highlighting his sovereignty over all people. Obadiah is not operating out of this nationalistic sense of pride that I want to see my country restored. I want God to take us back to the glory years and I want it to be just like it was when King David was alive. It wasn't that. It's Obadiah highlighting that God's promises and his purposes were going to be fulfilled in a Savior who was to come. Mount Zion is less about the physical location as it is about a God who is moving and who is acting and who is going to bring about salvation for his people. Salvation can only be found in God alone. This this message, this prophecy of Obadiah, um, as difficult as it is short, as Jerome said, um, 
it's, it's a reminder that it is God's work to right the wrongs of the world. And for the nation of Edom, it was a sign that God was serious about what they did. It was, he was serious about their injustice. He was serious about righting the wrong of the strong praying on the weak. And in general, it's a, it's a sense that says God is serious about the brokenness and sin of the world. You know, even the nation of Israel, they were being taken into captivity at this point because they decided that they wanted to do things on their terms. They didn't need God to tell them what to do. They could do it on their own. And so in one sense, instead of saying, your will be done, Lord, they said, my will be done. And God allowed them to have it. And I think that those are things that pull into our own lives as well, that the shortcomings and the sins of both Edom and their pride and their uh, acting out of injustice and also the, the sins of Israel and saying that I don't need you, God, I can do this on my own, are things that God takes really seriously. And if the message for Edom was that they were going to have to drink of the cup of God's wrath until they ceased to be, I think the question that is standing, jarring us in the face this morning, is if God is that serious about sin and brokenness and injustice in the world, are we going to have to drink of that same cup of God's wrath as well? This is the question that has to point us to Jesus. Because without Jesus, that is what we would have. We would be left to do. We would be left to drink that cup of God's wrath if it wasn't for Christ. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying and he's agonizing and he's sweating drops of blood and he's praying, God, take this cup from me. In other words, take this cup of wrath away from me. But then he prayed, but not my will, but yours be done. In Jesus' crucifixion and his death, Jesus drank the full cup of God's wrath for us. He stood in our place and he drank that cup so that whoever might believe in him would have life. God's desire is not for us to perish in judgment, but it is for us to receive life in Christ and to be free of judgment. Which is why Paul says in Romans 8 verse 1 that there is now no judgment. There is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. And this is the message that God entrusts to us. It's not a message of doom and gloom. It's not a message of celebrating the personal sufferings of the people we don't like. It's a message that, that God cares about justice. It's a message that God cares about restoring a broken and fallen world. It's a message that God cares about people and that he wants them to know the saving grace of his son, Jesus Christ. And that this message of Obadiah points us to this need for a savior who offers his life, who drinks the cup of God's wrath on our behalf and opens up the assurance and guarantee of life everlasting. Friends, this is the message of Obadiah. I invite you to uh, stand uh, right where we are this morning. Take a moment uh, and let's pray together as a church.
God, we've uh, heard a tough word this morning. We've heard uh, just things that might cause us to not want to read your word, to, to not want to think about the, the seriousness for which you view sin. But God, in that tough message, there's this profound message of grace that draws us ever closer to you, that points out the need for Christ in our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, we might have the assurance of who Jesus is and what he's done in our lives. And Lord, also as a church, maybe we can take a moment to confess personally how we may create injustice in the world or personally how we might not put you at the forefront of our lives. Uh, But Lord, as a church, uh, we maybe take a minute to confess too that the way that we add to the injustice of the world as a church Uh, whatever that might look like, Lord, we ask that you would forgive us of those things. And Lord, and just know that through the blood of Jesus Christ, that there is salvation, that there is forgiveness. God, may your name be praised. May your scriptures continue to speak to us, even in tough books like Obadiah. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We pray this in your name. Amen.